Chapter 15 Worthiness From Merit to Miracle Retaining this collaborative vision of an active and loving cooperation between God and man can rescue us from the pitfalls associated with that frightful word, worthiness. A little history may illustrate the term's dangers. Jesus espoused an ethic of virtue, holiness, cleanliness. The pure in heart, he said, would see God. It seemed logical to early Christians to institute norms, rules of behaviour and codes of conduct that would assist us in achieving that end. This institutionalization results almost inevitably in the foregrounding in the disciples' life of a kind of formalism. Kenneth Kirk notes that already in the early Christian centuries, that litmus test of rules pushed their way more and more into the foreground of the code, and obedience and conformity took the place of enthusiastic loyalty as the basis of Christian life. The sad effect of this development is a kind of self-concern, a self-consciousness that thwarts the outward-looking charity that is the disciples' true calling. Communion with God, present and future, is relegated to the background. Salvation and recompense become the main objects of the Christian's desire. What began as an admirable desire to abide by the precepts of the Master, which are other-oriented, all too easily morphed into an obsession with one owns spiritual athleticism. No one is a beneficiary in such a case, not the individual, not God, and certainly not one's neighbours. Some early Christians went to absurd lengths to demonstrate their mastery of self-discipline. Simeon Stylites, a renowned ascetic of the 5th century, lived for 37 years on a small platform atop a pillar in Syria, and hundreds followed his example. Tens of thousands of Christians live monastic lives of seclusion and rigorous self-deprivation. Those known as anchorites had themselves entombed while alive to ensure an escape-proof life of reflection. And today, many modern saints carefully monitor their performance and mark their achievements with awards and merit badges. This is not to devalue the virtues of discipline, Undoubtedly, mastery of self enables us to be more effective vehicles for God's purposes. However, two tragedies ensue from this orientation that makes personal spirituality the supreme achievement. It short-circuits God's purposes and priorities, and it can only lead to misery. Any path to spirituality that focuses on the self and its relationship to God misconstrues what the Restoration teaches about the two great commandments. They are inseparably intertwined, as we saw in God's lament to Enoch. One theologian writes that the highest prerogative of the Christian in this life as well as hereafter is the activity of worship. As King Benjamin taught, however, we can worship God only by devoting ourselves to the service of our sisters and brothers. We love God, and we serve God, 
by ministering to his children, all of whom are our kin. It is not our own spiritual performance, but our devotion to those around us. That is the point of restoration teachings. God is not ever assessing our worthiness. They are concerned that we collaborate with them to the best of our abilities in bringing peace and healing, the abundant life and eternal life, to the human family. We cannot serve God separate and apart from actively loving his children. William Tyndale got this point right. A Christian worketh to make his weak brother perfecter and not to seek a higher place in heaven. One of the most beautiful of Brigham Young's preachings evinced the freedom that comes when we escape the trap of perpetually gauging our own worthiness. He said, Others say, Where is my crown? Where is my increase? Where is my glory? And looking after pay all the time. I say, Look after your duty. Seek to know it and do it. And it's all right about your pay. I'll risk it if some are afraid that they will come short of going into the celestial kingdom and they wonder if they will be saved with the sanctified. I don't care anything about it. I have enlisted in the service of my God and will leave it to him what he'll do with me. Our preoccupation with worthiness on that score is not only misdirected, but also the source of the epidemic of guilt that afflicts the body of Christ. How might we find a way of confronting our own life and actions that does not lead to inevitable feelings of inadequacy, failure, and disappointment in self? Other Christians frequently describe salvation in terms of worthiness or acceptance. A major figure in the New Perspective on Paul movement, which is radically re-evaluating Protestant readings of Paul, begins his book on the subject by addressing the question of what we must do to win God's acceptance, and cites another scholar who is also asking about the respective options of faith or works to win God's favour. Such a vision of God is appalling. These scholars are invoking a sovereign deity who holds his love in reserve, waiting upon our fealty and proof of merit. God has never predicated their relationship with us on our worthiness. As Martin Luther King wrote, there is no graded scale of essential worth. That is why the loving destiny that awaits us Elder Uchtdorf affirmed, is not a prize won with the currency of obedience. Would we want to be part of a marriage or a friendship in which love is transactional, based on the kind of reciprocity that so confounded Job? Love worth having is not love that is earned. Our worth is not God's cup to be filled with correct words and gestures and deeds. Our worth already has the greatest validation of which the cosmos is capable. The universe's most perfect and holy being came to heal us from our wounds, redeem us from death, and shepherd us into immortality and life eternal. That was Christ's testament to our worthiness. And no force on earth or in hell can impugn a worth so powerfully affirmed. God's love, their commitment to us, precedes 
any action on our part. When Jesus looked upon the rich young man, beholding him, he loved him. The sequence tells us everything. Jesus beheld him and he loved him before the young man decided to follow or not to follow the Lord, and independently of whatever decision he was yet to make. In Zenos's allegory of the vineyard, the Lord nourishes his wild olive trees 22 times. 22 times he persists in lovingly tending, pruning, cultivating, caring for, and lavishing love and care and effort on one single tree, a wild tree that to all appearances is unresponsive to his efforts. As with us, his love precedes the coming of any fruit. We believe it is a slander against God to presume that their compassion is measured to our merit. The story of the prodigal son tells us otherwise. As Henri Nouvin writes, I have come to know in a small way what it means to be a father who asks no questions, wanting only to welcome his children home. We are all prodigals. We have all wandered, and we all fall short of our potential, without exception. And yet, as David Bentley Hart writes, the character of even the very worst among us is in part the product of external contingencies. And somewhere in the history of every soul, there are moments when a better way was missed by mischance, or by malign interventions from without, or by disorders of the mind within, rather than by intentional perversity on the soul's own part. Our heavenly parents are more generous with us than we are with ourselves, because they are wiser than we are. That is why we might best understand mercy not as turning a blind eye to our actions, but as seeing them with a fully understanding eye. As Nouvin reminds us, our brokenness has no other beauty but the beauty that comes from the compassion that surrounds it. The love that envelops us is not based on our worthiness. It is not our merit that brings it forth. This love, unsolicited, is the miracle that tells us we have a permanent and cherished place in the universe. A friend wrote of the moment when from the depths of her own dark night of the soul, she experienced a blinding epiphany, a perfect realization of a God of absolute, non-judgmental love. She wrote, I thought of Christ as a condemning being who demanded blind following, or else packed you off to a burning abyss. I thought, if I were to feel anything, it would be the disgust of a being who had seen my whole life in detail, knew the mountain of things I had done wrong in his book, and was repulsed. Instead, I felt something that will never leave me. My mind could not have manufactured it. If I could have invented something so beautiful, I would have done it a long time ago. I felt that everything about me and my life, every moment of grief, joy, heartache, trauma and darkness, was all perfectly understood. 
and none of it was condemned. I didn't feel guilted, shamed, or rejected. I felt loved. Not in the watery way society often uses the word. It was deep as an ocean. It was rich as cream. It was without bounds or conditions. Perhaps if we listen, we can hear the healer's words as the poet Alfred Tennyson did, consumed as he was by his own feelings of unworthiness. Thou canst not move me from thy side, nor human frailty do me wrong, so fret not that life is dashed with flecks of sin. Abide, thy wealth is gathered in, when time hath sundered shell from pearl.